Welcome to Crunching Tackles, where we break down the hardest-hitting social issues in sports. On today's show, Major League Soccer is now behind a paywall, and fans of the sport have very mixed feelings about it. Will this provoke a change in streaming and sports, or will the MLS come to regret their decision? My name is Chad Wiley, and with me, as always, is John Nekrasov. And John, we have a whole lot to dive into today, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I feel like we've had we've been on a, a lighter run of podcasts in terms of just number of topics, but uh, this one's going to more than make up for that. Yeah, we've got a lot of interesting and odd little topics, and then obviously the MLS to talk about a little bit later. Um, what's interesting, though, is we do have these issues to talk about, but I feel like we're really getting into a sports-heavy time like there's just Mm. a lot of like actual sports action that's like you know we've got march madness around the corner we've got the business end of the premier league and the champions league around the corner um nba mlb is about march madness pretty soon here yeah like it's we're about to have like we don't have a ton of like sweeping cultural issues that we're dealing with right now and we've got a lot of like interesting stories and then a lot of sports action which i don't know i've I'm really excited for March Madness, even though Liberty will not be there after a terrible performance on Sunday. But it's going to be good nevertheless. I'm going to have to find a team to root for, honestly. I don't even know who I'm going to choose. I've always like struggled to find a non-Liberty team that I think is a, like my college team outside of that. So I don't know. It'll it'll be it'll be an interesting year. I haven't picked either, but some of the teams, some of the programs where that I just like have a lot of respect for would be like I would check out like Michigan State. They have a really mm-hmm. like established. They have they have a lot of good NBA players that come out of there, like Draymond Green, or um, but, like they're really tough defensively. They've had a very stable coach for a long time. And, you know, I don't know if UNC is going to make the tournament this year, which is weird to say. <laughs> so I I may crazy. be in the same boat as you. So we'll have to see how this next week goes, and then I'm sure we'll talk about March Madness as much as we can although i realize that i'm probably going to be out of town for the first three and a half rounds of mm-hmm. the tournament um we'll, I'm we'll, gonna, have, we'll have a recap when we're done for sure yeah you may have to like solo pod any march madness things that without me until <laughs> <laughs> if there's something really big I'll, until i get back i'll do a little like a narrative a narrative action i'll i'll learn yeah uh, I'll learn editing on Audacity, and we'll uh, we'll make it happen. It's gonna be it's gonna be great. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great, John. A lot going on. Um, we're gonna talk a little bit of basketball. We're gonna talk a little bit of tennis. We're gonna talk a little bit of soccer, and we're gonna talk a little bit of golf today. Um, we literally are hitting all the bases. We are. So f- first thing up um, in the world of basketball, two stories: one out of the NBA, one out of college. First is um, probably. On the culture side, one of the bigger stories we're going to talk about today, which is the fact that the family of Co- the late, great Kobe Bryant, uh, Vanessa Bryant, and the daughters were paid about $30 million by the county of Los Angeles as a settlement after they sued the county for um, for sharing images, very graphic images of Kobe's death in the helicopter crash back in 2020. Um, this is a lawsuit that had been going on for a while. I think many people expected it to be settled. And um, this is just a really interesting example of something that has kind of been going on in the background for a long time. And we finally get this big update. I think the, the lawsuit was filed almost more than a year ago um, mm-hmm. to now have come to it being settled. And this is a really interesting 
case because the the laws on this kind of subject have changed in recent times, and there have even been, even been laws changed after Kobe Bryant's death in response to what happened in this circumstance. So first, do you mind explaining kind of why, like what 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 did Los Angeles County employees do wrong that led to this lawsuit? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was interesting because I. When I first saw this headline, I mentioned to you earlier, I kind of thought it was in relation to the controversy surrounding TMZ, like publishing things. And I thought that maybe it was to do with like the county, you know, putting forward information or photos that were breaching the family's privacy and giving them to the media. But it actually wasn't that at all. Basically, Vanessa Bryant alleged that um, members of the Los Angeles Fire Department and Sheriff's Department um, took pictures, like really graphic pictures of, you know, of Kobe and of his daughter uh, at the site of the crash after they had died and that they were sharing the photos like inside the department. There was one instance that she mentioned where she heard that I think it may have been a firefighter was like sharing photos at a bar or something. And she heard of that and you know said that that wasn't acceptable and so she sued the county for that however um none of those photos were ever published as far as we know um they the sheriff's department had them deleted pretty quickly but she got you know the ruling the judge ruled in favor of vanessa bryant in this case because um Essentially, because of this idea of postmortem privacy, basically that if you die, your family members have the right to privacy to control like images of you after your death. And this wasn't something that was super established basically until around 2012 when there was kind of a similar case where a judge ruled in favor of a mom who's pictures of a like someone had taken pictures of her dead daughter and published them somewhere and the court basically didn't rule to give her money in that case because there had been no like similar precedent beforehand but basically ruled that in all cases afterward the family had control of those things so if someone does take pictures of a dead relative then you're basically allowed to sue for that if that makes sense yeah what's pretty interesting in this case in terms of there being a lawsuit is that there really isn't like a tangible harm incurred on the bryant family Mm -hmm. like there would have been if if like tmz had gotten a hold of these photos and had been sending them to the entire world like as far as we know there are very few eyes who actually saw these images as far as we know they weren't sold so no one profited off of them. Mm. Um, as far as we know, they weren't shared with a large number of people. So in terms of like an actual harm being done to the Bryant family, there isn't a tangible one, but it is what you mentioned is just the idea of postmortem privacy is something that has become more and more important as, you know, it, with the rise of social media and with celebrity culture, um, privacy, especially for the families of, famous or influential people when they when they suffer a tragedy like this that is an important principle to uphold and so even though this wasn't you know the most damaging instance that it could have been this kind of seems like the lawsuit 
is is more so focused on the fact that there was misconduct and that you know this could have been mm-hmm. worse. You know, these photos, due to the fact that they were taken in the first place, could have fallen into the wrong hands. And so, while we're thankful that they didn't in this case, it's still saying that despite the fact that the outcome wasn't the worst that it could have been, there still was a problem of misconduct in this case. Right. Oh, th- as far as I understand, this case and the um, the precedent case, Marsh versus County of San Diego, kind of hinge on that idea of potential harm, um, specifically like potentially emotional harm. Vanessa Bryant talked to the court about how her big like fear in this was that like her daughters would go online and that somehow these photos would show up and they would see like pictures of their dead dad online, you know, if these photos were Mm -hmm. leaked. So there's kind of that. I, it seems like a lot of it, the actual like damages that she's winning in this case are from that idea of like fear of potential emotional harm and like living in fear because of that. Um, and it is interesting. You mentioned that state law has changed, according to the BBC. Um, state law has since been cast and since been passed in California, forbidding first responders from taking photos unauthorized by family members or you know relatives at similar scenes. Um, so basically, like you said, because of this case, the way that these incidents are being treated in California has directly changed because of Kobe Bryant's death. Yeah, I mean, there was a huge, you know, at first, like, I, if I remember right, where I, I think, like, when TMZ first reported the story, it went unverified for, like, mm-hmm. 30 to 45 minutes at the time, and they're kind of, like, and then people thought that, like, maybe TMZ had, like, taken down the report, like, it was false, and then it proved out to be true, but it, in terms of the way that the information was obtained in, in this case in particular, it did feel especially chaotic, dating all the way back to February of 2020. Yeah. And so, in terms of, you know, the, the finances, $29 million probably isn't that much to L.A. County. That's, you know, it's probably, I'm sure there are individual taxpayers in that county who paid $29, $29 million in taxes anyway. So, um, but I do, I do think it sends an important message. And that idea of potential yeah. harm, obviously, you know, if, 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 if even a single one of those firemen or sheriff's deputies had sent that picture knowingly or even in error to someone who could have publicized it you know the potential harm is is quite significant mm-hmm. yeah so definitely definitely the right right decision here but it is crazy how long the fallout from this specific instance has lasted obviously it was kind of a freakish accident but it, it is remarkable how poorly handled it was on so many areas of the public sphere John, staying in the world of basketball now, as we move on, um, this in, this uh, situation with Brandon Miller, the freshman basketball player out of Alabama, has been one of the bizarre stories of the year. We already talked Absolutely. about um, we already talked about a shooting involving college basketball players this season earlier with New Mexico mm-hmm. State University and that program being shut down. And this is a much more high-profile instance because of who Brandon Miller is. He is a he's the best player on the number four team in the country right now. He's one of the leading scorers in the nation. He is a projected lottery pick in the NBA. Many people have him in the top five or even the top three of the NBA draft. And so the situation is um, is quite remarkable. I did a little bit of reading about it, but kind of when you saw the headlines, what did you kind of know about the situation going into it? 
Yeah, I mean, when I saw this when it first broke, which I guess was around a month ago, right? Somewhere in that ballpark. Um, yes, yeah. And, you know, at first I thought that he was much... It, the headlines made it seem like he was more related to what happened than he was, that he was somehow involved in the shooting. And basically a 23-year-old woman was murdered by, I guess, a friend of his friend. But he brought, as far as my, as far as my understanding of the case goes now, uh, Miller brought a gun to a former teammate and then a friend of that former teammate ended up murdering someone um, sometime later with that weapon. And... Miller, as far as I know, wasn't on the scene, but it has created a lot of controversy um, surrounding Miller, surrounding whether he should be playing, surrounding how much he was involved in this case or what he knew. I don't know how deep your reading went, but I don't know on the outside, you know, he's kept playing since then and hasn't suffered any repercussions and doesn't seem to be charged or anything. But the parents of the victim of this murder were, are incredibly angry that he's basically suffered nothing for what's happened. Yeah, we were talking about the story because there's been so much outrage about the fact that he is still playing basketball. He hasn't been disciplined mm -hmm. by the team in any way. Um, he didn't face any suspension or, or anything like that. Um, but, and you're, but you're right that the headlines at first led me to believe that Brandon Miller was more involved than what the court documents that particularly were released last week have actually indicated mm -hmm. was his level right. of involvement. Basically, what happened is that Brandon Miller was driving his friend Darius Miles to a uh, club, and Darius Miles brought a gun in the car when he when he hitched a ride with Brandon Miller, and then left that gun in Miller's car when he went to this club. And so Darius Miles's gun is sitting in the back seat of Brandon Miller's car, and then at a later point, uh, Brandon Miller is called you know, is going to go pick him up. And Brandon Miller's attorneys say that he was already on his way when Darius Miles texted him specifically to bring the gun back. Other The, the, the victims say that maybe he was told to bring the gun back and then came back. But the point is, I think the important parts about this are the fact that it was not his gun. Um, mm -hmm. It was not Brandon Miller's gun, so he doesn't have any legal culpability in that way. And secondly, that he may or may not have known that the gun was going to be used at all when he was driving back. In fact, we don't even know if he necessarily knew that the gun was even in the car when he first started mm -hmm. driving back. We do know that while he was on the way, he received a text from Darius saying that they had been threatened and that they needed the gun. So that is the extent of Brandon Miller's involvement. In terms of Darius Miles and the other man who actually fired the shots that killed uh, Jamea Harris, they are arguing self-defense. They're saying that Miss um, Harris was in a car with a man who also had a gun and had raised that gun at them. And so, again, this is a situation where either party could have driven away and averted this whole situation from happening. Um, at first, right. Jamea Harris and her boyfriend, Mr. Johnson, I don't remember his first name, but something Johnson had driven away from them and then had come back to the parking lot where... Uh, Darius Miles and his friend were and then Darius approached the car shots were fired and Miss Harris was killed so the two men who are actually accused of murder are arguing self-defense um, and the most recent news is that a judge 
did deny them bond and has proceeded to move this to onto a grand jury to collect evidence and, and start charges. I, I think that the more I've read about this, the less concerned I am about Brandon Miller's involvement. There obviously is a world in which he knew the gun was in the car and maybe he even knew that there was going to be a problem. But the fact that he brought the gun to Darius and Darius wasn't even the one who fired the shot, but actually passed that gun to someone else. Is, it goes a long way in showing that Brandon Miller would not, did not knowingly like hand over a gun to someone for the purpose of a murder being committed because right. he, the person he handed the gun to wasn't even the one who committed the murder and actually fired shots. And so I feel like, the more I read about this, the better I feel about him continuing to play basketball. And ultimately, I think I would be surprised if this, if he did face any punishment or if this significantly affected his draft status in the NBA. Hmm. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And from my reading, kind of corroborates what I read as well. It It's interesting because obviously he's by far the most high profile person in this story and this story is being elevated by the fact that he was involved in you know even in a small way and you know his coach has taken some flack for sort of making offhand comments basically saying like we're not punishing him we're just kind of waiting to see what happens seems like he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and people were very frustrated with that um harris's parents like i said earlier you know basically said that he was an outrage that Miller was allowed to continue playing. I don't know what you think about that. I understand that, you know, being connected to an instance like this in any way would, when you've lost your child, would make you feel like this person is in some way responsible for their death. But at the same time, like if there's, unless he's charged with something, you know, it's not like as far as we know, he broke any rules i'm assuming the gun was legally owned since that hasn't been questioned in any way you know so in that sense like i don't know that you can punish a player for something that they're not even being charged with you know yeah even and this this varies state to state so i'm going to speak generally but generally even if the gun was registered to brandon miller as long as he didn't hand the gun off knowing what the result was going to be, he's that person, a, a person in that situation is not usually criminally prosecuted. And there would right. be, it would be common that if someone possessed a gun that was registered to them and gave it to someone else, not knowing what was going to happen and a crime was committed, in some cases, the victims can sue civilly for like negligence or, or other things in terms mm. of. Um, that happening but the fact that the gun was one not registered to Brandon Miller two there's no proof that he knew knew it was in the car at the time that he started driving back to where Miles was and second didn't even hand the gun over to the eventual shooter like I, I think it's pretty clear that there is no criminal or civil case that can be brought against Brandon Miller right the, the worst you can say about him is that he was maybe hanging out with some bad people and was at the was at a bad place at a bad time. Um, you can question right. the type of company he keeps. You can question what he's doing at a club late at night. But again, many athletes engage in similar behavior. 
and the fact that this did turn into something obviously very tragic that resulted in a death. I, I, yeah, I, I haven't been able to find a line that actually does connect Brandon Miller to any sort of civil or criminal wrongdoing. Hmm. Yeah, I think in that light, like, it's crazy to be involved, to be, I know, I'm sure it's crazy for him to be connected to that kind of tragedy in this way. But I do think that, you know, as long as he doesn't want to step away from the team, you know, like given the circumstances I don't I think you're right I don't think there's in my mind anything that is punishable here even from like a team discipline standpoint you know um so I think it's likely that this will just continue on and again I get the family in a non-legal way being frustrated but the facts of the case just like don't really line up with that I guess which is a yeah. complicated and messy place to be, but that's just, you can't you can't like ax someone from a team or punish them for something that they're not like punishable by law for. Right. Yeah. I'm not. I mean, I don't know it enough about the case to say definitively if I was Nate Oates, would I let Brandon Miller play or not? Based on what right. I've explained today, if if all if all that happened is the way that I understand it today, with the best of my knowledge. Do I think that he should be allowed to play? I probably do. Um, Mm -hmm. You could definitely have some frustration with a particular celebration that the team or a thing that the team did. Yeah, go. Yeah, go ahead and talk about that. You you put that in there. Yeah, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say. Yeah, it. There was an instance. I guess it was a couple weeks after this. um, This shooting happened, where Miller was being introduced at a game during during the walk ons and a player like kind of did like a pat down celebration introduction kind of thing as he like ran out of the tunnel. Um, And it just seemed like very, I mean, it's just very out of taste, you know, very poor taste. Mm -hmm. Um, If, if it was, I'm assuming it was a direct allusion to what happened, but I mean, we don't know exactly. The coach said, quote, quote unquote, they've been doing this all year. As far as, I've heard that was a one-time thing that has not happened at other games. Um, so it seems, at least in my mind, like I don't know what else you'd be alluding to, that you'd be doing a pat-down introduction at a game. And in that sense, I'm like, if you're going to be making a joke about this circumstance on the basketball court, that calls into mind, like that calls into question your character a little bit. Beyond that, I don't think we have like a really firm case but i think that that clearly is a very bad taste situation that i understand the family being outraged about yeah i agree with that the last thing i'll say on this is that well something that i do feel 100 percent confident in is that nba teams are going to do their homework on this and that mm, the the teams absolutely. that the team that looks at him the team that drafts him are going to have a a much better handle on the situation than we do with the with the caliber of private investigators that they are able to hire they are going to know exactly what's going on and so if if he goes in the top five in the top three of the draft as he's projected to i think that that's going to be done with a great deal of confidence by whatever team that is that 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 there is nothing to be concerned about in terms of that so right and we're not even mentioning John Morant right now, who is a whole other story. Oh, yeah. That's a whole other situation. And again, that's something I want to wait for for more information on. 
Sure, um, for sure. But we should we should talk about that next time we pod. Um, John, a little bit of tennis here. Um, the Novak Djokovic vaccination saga now <laughs> in the in the third year of the COVID Absolutely pandemic endless. <laughs> is still going on. Uh, yes, it is. It is still going on. And I'll be honest, you know, I have been pro-vaccine since the beginning of the pandemic. We've talked about this. No one can say that I've been an anti-vaxxer at any point during this pandemic. But this is this has gotten to the point where it's, in my mind, a little ridiculous. Um, we are, like you said, three years into the pandemic. Um, boosters are not required in terms of vaccination. Occasionally, it seems like we have like little mini resurgences of like COVID slash like, you know, COVID has basically just become another illness that people will catch every so often. Um, but I think it's pretty clear that the pandemic is over for all intents and purposes. Um, and if you don't think so, I'd really kind of question your medical judgment, given that all of the infectious disease experts and the CDC basically consider it to be over as like a serious medical emergency for all intents and purposes. Um, but that being said, the U.S.'s travel ban for unvaccinated foreigners is still in place. Um, and as a result, even though Australia allowed Novak to play, obviously, since he won, um, the U.S. is so far not allowing him to get a visa to come play. So he is backed out of Indian Wells, um, the non-major major tournament that's happening in a little bit um is, is it this week or next week next week next week i think yeah it's coming up um and it's kind of like the big kind of highlight of spring tennis he has backed out of that because he couldn't get a visa he'll probably most likely have to back out of miami as well um and that you know raises doubts about whether he'll be able to play in the u.s open in august or september um if the u.s doesn't change this yeah i'm actually quite confident that that's not going to raise doubts about it because the fact okay, of the matter is that the biden administration has announced that the national emergency is going to end on may 11th and they announced that at the beginning of this year so okay. you can you can question why they didn't why they announced it so far out in advance instead of just announcing it effective immediately but we know the deadline of when the national emergency ends it's going to be may 11th and the fact that these tournaments come before that deadline means that he cannot play and once that national emergency is lifted that will include the travel bans and he will be allowed to travel after that date as will any other unvaccinated foreigners you know i share your opinion of the vaccine you know that i'm mm -hmm. vaccinated and double boosted and, and all, all the good stuff i've got I've got um, so much mRNA in my blood that I don't even know what to do with myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, but seriously, I I think that I agree that when you look at it three years later, the way that like, particularly here in America, we've completely moved on from COVID. Our stores are full. No one's wearing masks anymore. At least less than 10% of the people I see, there's no social distancing yeah. anymore. Indoor dining, movie theaters, everything everything is back to normal for the most part. And so to look at Novak and say that he still can't come to the country is weird. But I do understand why the government is not going to give him an exemption that they're not giving to foreigners. And I guess the biggest thing is that like 
we can quibble with the Biden administration on why they chose this particular deadline of May 11th and not March 11th or February 11th for when they're going to lift the the national emergency. My guess is that a lot of that has to do with the emergency spending provisions that come with a national emergency, particularly money that the federal government can give to state governments that has to be eased off as opposed to just being cut off completely. You're going to start to slowly ease these states off of the millions of dollars being given to them because of a national emergency. And so that's probably why they viewed this as a four-month plan as opposed to something that they could just do effective immediately. But um, yeah, I'm not concerned at all about the U.S. Open. I'm really only concerned here about Indian Wells and Miami. Yeah, I think it's it's a shame that he's not able to play because he's been having a good season. Um, And, you know, I was reading in the New York Times about this, and they did a story about all the people who've been trying to both, you know, connected to the government and connected to the tennis world who have been lobbying for Novak to be able to play. Um, And it's just like the, the, the biggest point that came up was like, you know, if you since the U.S. does not require boosters, if you were vaccinated in 2020 like I was, unless you've been boosted, it doesn't like it doesn't affect you anymore. Like it doesn't stop you from getting COVID at least like in any meaningful way. And so Novak could have gotten the vaccine back then and wouldn't have any immunity from the vaccine and would be allowed into the country. So it's not like a practical measure at this point. I get what you're saying from a governmental standpoint, but also like the travel ban at this point is kind of ridiculous. Um, So I think it's just, it's a kind of weird. It's a shame that he's not going to be able to play, but hopefully, hopefully you're right and everything will be in order and he'll be able to play in, in New York. Yeah. I, I, I think that when we talked about it before, I agree with you that it would make sense based on that logic, why they would lift the vaccine. But I do just want to say that I, I have no problem with them not making an exemption for Novak Djokovic that they wouldn't make for an ordinary person. I think that's, I think that's fair. I do think that's fair, yeah. but I think I think the ban itself is a little silly at this point. Is my primary point. Yeah, a little long in the tooth at this point. I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if Australia is letting him in, and Australia was so much more intense than we were, if Australia is letting yeah. no back in, we should also let yeah. no back in. <laughs> yeah, I'm just lucky that I'm a U.S. citizen when I travel, so I don't have to worry about it. So, word. <laughs> that's good stuff, John. Let's talk about the the big event of today this is the big story and we're talking about the mls because you know this month i guess late in february and now the mls has started and it's on a new format it's being the exclusive rights are owned by apple tv um apple tv the widely really really widely growing um streaming service that particularly has a niche in the American soccer world due to the hit television show Ted Lasso that has captivated the hearts and minds of of many like ourselves that is coming back in exactly one week and is that's a thrilling thing to think about that Ted Lasso season three is only eight days away so are you going to be binging it in Europe yes yes the answer is yes (laughs) well it might be week to week again so we we might not be we might just be starting it but yeah yeah um, but this is not a podcast about Ted Lasso. This is a podcast about the MLS. Dang it. And <laughs> I think the big part of this, John, is that a lot of people, myself included, looked at the 
who already pay for the regular Apple TV. So we already pay for the shows mm-hmm. and the regular Apple TV stuff and the the one Major League Baseball game every week and whatnot. Then we see that there's an extra one hundred dollars for this MLS for the MLS pass. And a lot of people, myself included, looked at that and were like, um, no, thank you. I was more than happy to watch Major League Soccer when it was part of the $5 a month ESPN Plus package. Um, I already paid for that for other things, like every hockey game, lots of baseball games, things like that. But the idea that I would have to pay that much money for for MLS additionally was not something that I was really interested in. And I think that's something that the MLS is going to have to think about as they start to see how this um, how this is going to work and if this this idea of putting an extra hundred dollars on top of Apple TV is going to be a profitable way of getting people to watch their product yeah it's interesting so I don't know how much you've read about their kind of structure since um, things have kicked off but it's not exactly the structure that I that I personally thought it was, um, which I think is partially kind of a marketing issue on Apple's front. Um, because in reality, Apple is actually not going, the MLS is not going entirely behind a paywall, um, even though it kind of sounded like it was. There will be, if you subscribe to Apple TV+, Plus, there will be, I think, roughly 40% of the MLS games throughout the season will be actually in front of the paywall. So you still have to subscribe to Apple TV, but, and you may not be able to watch every game you want, but kind of similarly to how the Premier League works or even how the NFL works, where you can't watch every game without subscribing to Sunday Ticket, whether it's, which we can get to later, whether it's owned by YouTube TV or DirecTV or whatever, you may may not be able to watch every game you want to, but you will have access as just an Apple TV subscriber to a certain amount of games every weekend, um, every game day. I'm pretty sure there will be, you know, games available to you. And there occasionally will be also linear TV options through Fox um, that will be pushed out from time to time. So it's not, I was actually quite upset when I first, this was first publicized because it just, it did, it wasn't really publicized super well. But since that point, I've kind of I feel like information has been disseminated a little better and I my stance on this deal has changed a little bit as a result because I do think having things in front of a paywall is crucial to growing the I don't know the I guess the profile of MLS in the US I am not I'm still not 100% sure that this will be a winner move for the MLS but I do think that my fears that locking everything behind a paywall was going to crush the MLS low-key actually were not founded. Yeah, I think mean, that's interesting. I, I do think that this product is priced about where it should be proportionately to other American leagues. So, for you know, Expound. if the MLS is 100, because MLB TV, which I think is a little bit more popular, would be is 150. Right. And then NBA League Pass is a little bit more than that. And then at the very top, you have NFL Sunday Ticket, which is 300 bucks a year. So I think that it's like... obscene. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that it is like proportionally about where MLS fits in with the American sports mm-hmm. landscape. Um, I think the only thing that you could say is that like it's so much easier to access hockey 
because hockey is just a regular part of, of ESPN Plus, which is such a cheaper service than what they're offering. I think the right. biggest issue for me is that there's so much better global soccer that's cheaper. Absolutely. Um, it's it's not as much how much how MLS compares with other American leagues, but the fact that you can get the same sport at a better with a better quality for so much cheaper. Whether it's you can get the entire Champions League for six ninety nine a month with Paramount, or you can get every uh, Premier League game for five ninety nine a month or four ninety nine a month with Peacock. Um, when you compare those things to what this hundred dollar price tag is for MLS, that's where it starts to feel like, hmm, I'm not sure if this is if I'm a soccer fan and I want to watch just two or three leagues, I'm not sure if this is the one I want. Where if I can get I can get all of German soccer and all of Spanish soccer as part of ESPN Plus, but I have to pay so much extra for for a major league soccer. Yeah, I genuinely think it's a huge... It is the biggest issue that faces the MLS right now. I think you're absolutely right. Um, no American sport is trying to compete right now. In term, when, it's, when American sports are trying to grow in the American market, no American sports are trying to compete with other leagues within their sport. Right? The NFL is it. If you want to watch football, you know there are upstarts like the XFL that keep trying to show up and you know create their market but in this circumstance the mls is the xfl you know obviously it's a little bit mm. bigger you know in terms of profile than the xfl teams are at this point but you're trying to carve out a share of an already existing market and build fan bases with people who are already f firmly rooted in teams with hundreds of years of history right and that's a circumstance that the NFL, the NBA, the MLB, they don't have to deal with at all. Um, right. And I think, I do think that's genuinely a, like, a huge, a barrier in a way. You know, I think that the MLS has a lot of potential to grow in the U.S. Because we all want a thriving, all of us soccer people want a thriving so soccer culture in the U.S. And you and I, as Arsenal and Manchester United fans, we can't go to games, like, ever. You know, we may be able to go, you know, a couple times in a lifetime, get over to the Emirates, to Old Trafford and, you know, take in some games. But that's not unless for some reason we end up in the UK. That's not what our lifestyle is ever going to be. Right. And yeah, so that right. means that we are we don't have an in-person soccer experience aside from the MLS. And so I think the MLS mm. has a huge potential to grow in that way. Um, and, you know, take charge of that area of the market. And a deal like this could help elevate the the TV product in a way that enhances the on-field product as well financially and continues to grow the profile of the sport. But I do think it's an interesting conundrum. Like I was listening to a podcast um, with some Nashville sports media guys on the 440 Sports Network that were talking to a sports blogger that has covered Nashville for a long time that's done blogs and podcasts and stuff and talking about how basically th their views on how the MLS can grow. And, you know, it's strange. Like, as a fan, I don't know how you feel about the MLS. Like, you know, I've never been to a Nashville game just because I haven't been around the city since it was established. Um, but I do try to catch the MLS occasionally. But I probably never will feel as connected 
to my MLS team as I do to Arsenal, which is a team, Mm -hmm. you know, halfway across the world. But I've gone through emotional things with my English team that I just haven't had those same moments with my American team. Um, And it's interesting to kind of think about how the MLS could kind of work its way, like you said, into that market in a way that develops its product in a meaningful way. Yeah, I think, and I don't want to like transition to the pop culture part of this podcast too quickly, but something we've seen a lot with with the general streaming wars is this idea of rapidly growing counterbalanced with profit. Because what we've saw from, from Netflix, from Disney, from HBO when they first started is that they were willing to take huge amounts of financial losses in order to get a bunch of content out for a really, really affordable price. And in the process, they got people completely hooked on what they were offering. They ran blockbusters, Netflix specifically, ran blockbuster completely out of business, ended Mm -hmm. physical media, created original shows, bought the rights to movies, started started making original movies, competed to win Oscars, and really made themselves a giant. And as they were doing that, they were losing billions of dollars. But then, once they felt like they hit the maximum number of subscribers possible, then they started to up the price, or introduce ads, or do other things to now change from this rapidly growing product to something that is sustainable in the long term. We've seen the same thing with Disney Plus and HBO Max. Um, All of these services are slowly now beginning to increase their prices or in Netflix cases, end password sharing to create more accounts. Now that they've got people hooked, they can raise the price and we're focused on revenue because they know that the market is there and the market is staying with them. I don't think Apple has enough people hooked yet. I'm sorry, I don't think the MLS has enough people hooked yet. it feels like they might have taken this step a couple years too early. And obviously they got like $2.5 billion from Apple to do this, which is huge for them. That's a massive amount of money. But in terms mm-hmm. of their popularity, I think Major League Soccer is still in a space where it should be as available as possible because they have not gotten to the peak or the plateau of their potential audience. And when... Mm-hmm. When in-person Major League Soccer experiences is three or four times more expensive than Major League Baseball or National Hockey games, and when the price is significantly more expensive on television than other comparable sports, I just wonder if people are going to say, well, as I'm saying, well, Major League Soccer was at most fourth or fifth in my priority of sports anyway, so... Why would I bother? Hmm. I mean, I think that's a really valid point. And it was interesting. The um, the coach of Inter Miami, Phil Neville, brother of notable pundit Gary Neville, um, who has been well-memed for this weekend, but we won't get into that on the air. Um, no need. Thank you. <laughs> um, he took some flack for some comments he made to The Athletic recently um, he was just super honest about what he thought about the MLS, what he's thought about coaching there. 
Um, he clearly seems to enjoy what he's doing um, and thinks there's a lot of room to grow. But he also, you know, said things like the MLS constantly changing their playoff format. He said doesn't help the league. Um, and he said that one thing that really stood out to me in the interview, it wasn't really something that drew criticism at all, but he basically said that he thought the biggest place that the MLS needs to grow is its atmosphere in comparison to, you know, growing up playing for Manchester United in England. Obviously, like, mm-hmm. there is an established culture there that is, you know, there's nothing there's nothing like it. It is, it is, you know, you've got thousands and thousands of people in a stadium that are just singing their guts out for the entire, you know, 90 minutes. And it's history that's been there for hundreds of years. And it is hard to, you know, take a product that hasn't existed in America before in any meaningful way and build it into something that can rival that, like, emotional connection with the fans. Because ultimately that's what you're aiming for like you do want a good on-field product but ultimately you're trying to create a thriving fan base in each of these mls cities where people are truly invested in their club and don't just show up on occasion um because they want to see a little soccer and then go home you want these teams to be part of your communities in the way that the chiefs are part of kansas city's community right now you know obviously they won the have won the super bowl and stuff but you know, it's clear that they are a fundamental part of the Kansas City community. And, you know, soccer is just not there right now in the same way. You don't see almost any American cities going soccer crazy for their MLS teams in the same way that a city goes crazy for a Super Bowl or that a European city goes crazy for, you know, winning a Premier League title or something like that. Um Soccer still has a long way. It's growing so much in the U.S., but it has a long way to come there. And the MLS, I think, has even an even longer way to come, at least in my understanding. You know, like last year's MLS Cup final, according to Forbes, brought in 2.1 million viewers, which was the most since 1997. Um, you know, that's a lot of viewers, but in comparison to something like the Super Bowl is like a drop in the bucket, Right. Compared to a regular season NFL game, that's a drop in the bucket. Yeah, absolutely. Regular season NFL game blows that out of the water, right? Which goes to show, like, the most popular game in the MLS is just, like, nothing in comparison, right? So it's got a long way to come. And I think you're right that if they make it less accessible now, that hurts them in the long run. Like, I'm just, I'm trying to Google right now. I think, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that a regular season Sunday night baseball broadcast does more than the MLS final. I'm pretty sure it does. I think I saw it was... No, that's... No, no, no. So the average of night baseball does 1.4 million. So a little bit less. So that is actually quite a mm-hmm. bit less than... But again, like, we're... Like, again, this is their... This is their final. That is just marginally better than regular season baseball. Probably would be comparable to, like, regular season basketball and would be way, way, way less than a regular season CBS football game or college football, for right. that matter. Um, yeah, I, th- I think your point is right about the fact that the, the fan base is there in the sense that there these teams do have really, really passionate followings, but those followings just aren't big enough yet 
if you compare it to, to college basketball or, or, or college football or other sports, I feel like even in some of the most successful MLS cities and in some of the most passionate fan bases, this still would be like the third or fourth most popular sport in those cities. Like the most mm-hmm. famous MLS brand is LA Galaxy and they would still be well behind the Lakers, the Dodgers, the Rams for, for fans. Same with like the Seattle Sounders who have been the most recently successful team for an extended period of time. But I wouldn't imagine that they're more popular than the Mariners or the or the Seahawks are. And so, right. yeah, I, I, I think that you maybe like this decision with Apple a little bit more than I do. I think that it is a move that they could make but I think I would have waited a couple more years and just let it mm-hmm. be on ESPN Plus for a couple more years. Um, just because, again, people like me really tapped into that. And I was a regular viewer um, of the MLS, and I haven't watched a single MLS game yet this year. So hmm. um, as I, I'll just speak for me as a sports enthusiast, soccer enthusiast, who right. when it was part of a package I already paid for was willing to. But, like, I went out of my way to get Peacock for the Premier League. I went out of my way to get Paramount specifically for the Champions League. And that's mm-hmm. just not something that I'm doing for the MLS. And maybe I'm more of the outlier than the rule, but I wouldn't I wouldn't assume that I am. I would think that there would be a I lot of people not. Yeah. more like me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is a, it's a TV war, right, between... Soccer already is a TV war between various leagues in the Premier League, obviously, because NBC has done such a phenomenal job. You know, the the Premier League grew in the U.S. because NBC put soccer on local TV and on cable TV. Right. Where you're able, you just switch your TV on on Saturday morning and you've got the biggest names in the world in soccer. Um playing duking it out you've got top of the line commentary you've got excellent production and i think that has made such a huge difference i don't think the the impact of nbc on soccer culture in the u.s can be overstated you know they have done so much in growing the sports profile here obviously there have been millions of soccer fans here for a long time you've got you know, you've got international people from all over the world that bring a love for soccer here. But I think the Premier League has done a ton. And, you know, I would just like to see, like you said, I think my big takeaway here is that I would like to see MLS be more accessible than less accessible so that we all can make the sport, you know, like more appreciated here that there can be bigger turnouts at MLS games, um, that these teams get better better and bigger fan bases and more support. And but I think like for now, MLS is going to be competing with the NHL as like the fourth sport. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's like a reasonable goal to try to like, you know, get higher than the NHL. But in terms of, like, actual soccer fans around America, like, soccer, the MLS has the resources of fan base to be one of the most popular leagues in America. But like we said, it's competing with much better soccer. And I think that is a it's a, it's a big leap that the MLS is going to have to overcome. Yeah. 
I don't want to dwell too long on this point. I do have one other thing to say just about sports products and streaming in general, which is that as a consumer of way too many streaming services, it is completely unacceptable to require someone to pay $100 for a season of soccer and then still make them watch advertisements. That's um, true. That is advertise, true. The, the whole point of paying for something, like, like a company can get revenue, revenue in two ways, making it free to consumers and having advertisement or charging the consumers. And when these companies get so greedy that they want to do both, I think it's absolutely outrageous. Like there's a like the the services like Peacock that allow you to pay two or three dollars extra to not have ads or, or Netflix or HBO, all of these are doing it now. Like people are willing to pay the extra to not have ads. But again, it's a difference of two or three dollars a month. And Major League Soccer is charging a hundred dollars for a season. That is like Oh, that's a significant amount of a person's money to then mm-hmm. still show them, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of ads in a two hour broadcast. That's just like, yeah, it, just, it, it comes across as overly greedy. And like, basically you're saying, you're just gonna pay me for the right to have this product, but I'm still gonna like make more money off of you by showing you things that you don't wanna see after you're paying me $100 is just crazy to me. I, I think that's so nuts. Yeah, I think I think that's a very that's an interesting point. And I think I think the biggest takeaway here is that it does feel like the MLS thinks a little bit too much of itself right now. Um, yeah. I think that's an that's an issue that will have to be that if they don't take themselves seriously enough that it may hurt them long term. I am interested though to see the one we're going to talk about Netflix's golf show full swing in a little bit here. I am interested to see what they do because um, it sounds like they're going to. They've announced a partnership with Box to Box Films, which is the producer of both Drive to Survive and Full Swing, and it sounds like they're going to do some documentary series on MLS teams. I'm interested to see if they're going to be any good um, in terms of developing the MLS's kind of like appeal i'm sure they'll be on apple tv plus um but drive to or not drive to survive but box to box films has done some very high quality work so i'm interested to see kind of how that's going to end up turning out yeah and again if that's if that's part of the regular apple tv subscription and not the extra one i will watch them Mm -hmm. because i love their shows (laughs) and i specifically really enjoyed full swing which i want to talk with you about yep John, we, yeah, we did think... talk about Breakpoint. We talked specifically about the fact that Netflix and these these shows in particular, Drive to Survive, Full Swing, and Breakpoint, seem to be the standard of sports documentary show. And Netflix in particular has just elevated beyond what Prime has done or what, what other companies have done in the same mm-hmm. genre. And I know that I don't think you liked Breakpoint as much as Full Swing. I don't know how far in Full Swing you are. I'll say I'm all the way done. You're, I think, halfway mm-hmm. done-ish? I'm uh, like a third way done, yeah. Okay, a third of the way done. But I just feel like, again, the the quality here has been really high. And I think whatever you might want to say about the way this doesn't match up quite with Breakpoint is going to have more to do with the, with the characters involved than with the actual execution of the product. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like we talked about. I loved Breakpoint. The first half of it was a uh, delight. I'm annoyed that I don't get another second half until like the summer. I'm like, give me more. Yeah. I want mm-hmm. more tennis. Apparently, it's been renewed. Side note: before we get into full swing, which I'm very excited for. Well, I they heard both have the tennis podcast. Oh, they both have. Okay, good. Yeah, thrilling news on all fronts. Um, you know, you. I mean, like just being honest. Uh, Speaking from my experience as a sports fan, golf, I'll occasionally, if there's like absolutely nothing else on, I will turn golf on, but it's not a sport that I'm trying to watch, you know, in general, unless I'm just like having some background noise on. Um, so, so disrespectful. This show, That's outrageous. I know it is. It's incredibly disrespectful of me, but I'm just being honest about my approach to the show. Okay. This show is working with a... Not a hostile audience that's a little strong, but a slightly negative audience, right? Yeah. And I find yeah. myself interested in the show as it's going on, hmm. which goes to show that the show is generally doing a good job at engaging someone who generally, when golf is on, says, mm, is there curling on? Like, you know, oh that's, my God. A, that's a little strong. <laughs> I'm just being mean. That's so rude. <laughs> and I like curling, but that's rude. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> uh, no, in all seriousness, though, it is as a complete golf outsider who basically knows nothing about the sport outside of the stories I edit for my newspaper on a weekly basis. I feel like I'm getting to know the characters better. I feel like I'm understanding a little bit more of the nuances of each tournament, which is cool because there's just there's so many tournaments and it feels like each of them have their own like flavor and their own importance. And there's so many kind of players who are like constantly rotating in and out that are like good sometimes and then bad the next week. Um, So it's helpful for me as sort of similarly to Breakpoint as sort of like a primer for understanding golf. I do think we talked a little bit about this beforehand. I do think it's harder to depict golf, depict like the flow of a tournament in golf, like you can do with a soccer season or with a tennis tournament, just because it's so much less linear. Um, You're having to like, just like the way you're shooting someone's performances is so kind of dependent on like individual shots. I guess, and kind of just like random moments that don't feel like they have any particular like connection other than the golfer's emotional state. Um, So it's a little harder to like keep track of as a viewer, but I do think they've done a really good job. And as we're getting, as I'm getting more into like the live drama side of the golf season, I am more and more intrigued. Yeah. Here's what the show did really well. Um, and I'll try to not just make it directly in comparison to Breakpoint, but just to start out, mm-hmm. yeah, Full Swing has the A-list top-tier players, and Breakpoint did not, to be quite honest with you. Like they have sure. the this Full Swing has the equivalent of Djokovic and Nadal, and like they have everyone but Tiger. Basically, they have right. Rory, yeah. they have Thomas, they have Spieth, they have Kepka, they have Dustin Johnson, they have all of almost all of the people that you most want to see talk about golf on the show which is awesome um and the second thing they do really well and i think this is especially compared to tennis is show just how hard golf is compared to any other sport Mm. um you you talk about the fact that it's hard to kind of like make it 
super clear exactly where in the timeline you are when you're trying to juggle different tournaments, different players. But they highlight players like um, like Joel Damon and like Brooks Kepka who who when they get in a slump just seem to have no way out of it. And the fact that there are, you know, a hundred people who enter a tournament and only half get to play the weekend, only half get paid, and only one win. And these these players who fight for years to get their first win or or players who are celebrating a top 10 finish like they won a major. Like, this is just a uniquely difficult sport. And I think that they captured the spirit of both the frustration and the ultimate joy of the sport of golf in the sense that you see someone who clicks into form and just goes crazy like Scotty Scheffler and someone who is so discouraged by the way that they play that they quit the tour and go to live like Brooks Kepka, and it's just a really interesting study in the human character because golf pulls at at every single part of an athlete's character and particularly their mind um, because golf is just such a uniquely demanding mental exercise, more so than any other sport I've ever watched. Hmm. Interesting. Can I just say I hate Brooks Kepka? That's my big takeaway from this show I know so far. You do. I despise him. I despise his guts. Every time he's like, "Oh, I'm doing terrible. I have my pool and my, you know, supermodel girlfriend, but I can't hit online? my putts. We met online. I can't hit my putts. My life is horrible. I hate everything." And I'm just like over here, like, "Oh, boo hoo." <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> cry, cry more, <laughs> Brooks. Like, I don't know. I, I hate him even more than I hate Nick Kyrgios and Breakpoint, which is remarkable mm. because Nick Kyrgios mm. is really annoying, but Brooks Kepka somehow is more annoying. So I now know, I now have someone to root against at golf tournaments, Chad, which may make me more interested in golf tournaments. I'm not gonna lie. I love it. Although he won't be on any <laughs> golf tournaments that I've been watching. Oh, that's true. You're right. Never mind. I forgot. I'll just boo him. I'll boo his existence. From, from a distance. That's that's disappointing, actually. I was I completely forgot that he moved because I haven't seen him move to live yet. Um, yeah, I think it's an enjoyable show. I do think that, at least in as so far as I've gotten, golf is obviously a, like, on a on a totem pole of insanity soccer is pretty high on the insanity scale of crazy athletes tennis has individually crazy athletes but obviously like it's a quote-unquote gentleman's sport so there are certain rules of decorum that are required unlike Mm -hmm. Sunderland till I die you know where you just have like fans cursing out the cameras at every possible opportunity tennis that's like not really allowed as much Um, and then golf is like the bottom end of in, in terms of most circumstances of like acceptable insanity. So I do think you're, it's interesting to see a show looking to make a sport that most of us view as kind of pedestrian, make it intense. But I think they've been doing like a good job of that. And I think, I think shows like this are important in introducing people to sports like tennis and golf that are kind of on the fringe of the popular sports market, right? Like F1 is a natural kind of like high octane 
sport that a show can take that action and make it really dramatic. Um, tennis and golf are kind of more outsider sports in that realm that they're looking to use this documentary to make strides in popular culture. And I don't know if how much of an impact they're making, but I definitely feel like I've enjoyed them and I've learned a lot more is what I would say. Yeah. What I love about Full Swing as well, and this is my last point, but it really, and I think this is part of the way that the storylines, the way that they organize them, but partly just the people that they chose, it really shows the different motivations that athletes have and the different Absolutely. levels with which they view greatness. And you mentioned before we started recording the way that it shows in the same episode someone like Brooks Kepka and someone like Scotty Scheffler, who one of them is mentally tormented by their own struggles and only gets into a, and that just creates a further cycle of self-doubt and struggle. And the other one who really can't even be bothered to think about golf when he's home because he's just loving his home life is just winning tournaments and tournaments in a row. Like Scotty Scheffler just can't stop winning. And mm -hmm. then in episode four, you get a guy like Joel Damon who literally says that like, he thinks that the best he can be is a top 50 player. Like he's really not that like competitive of a guy. He, he never thinks he's going to win. He, and he's super self-deprecating and he just doesn't take himself seriously. Um, and so you have that kind of perspective of, of what do you do when, when you just love the game of golf, but you never think you'll actually be the best. And you don't have that singular competitive drive that someone like Rory has. And then you have um, another episode where the, the, the kind of simultaneous storylines are Tony Finau and Colin Morikawa. And you see Tony Finau at home with his family and bringing his family on the road with him and them experiencing these tournaments together as a family bonding experience in the aftermath of uh, death of both his and his wife's parents and just the way that their family organizes. And then you contrast that with Colin Morikawa, who's younger, doesn't have kids, and he, you see him in like Adidas brand meetings, like literally uh, meetings where they talk about his outfits for the year and the way that he brands and his private jets and stuff like that. And you just, you just see family, money, sponsorships, competitiveness, success, self-doubt, all of these different motivations that these athletes have. And because there are so many people involved in the game of golf, you just see so many different types of people and different glimpses and windows. And I just thought that the show was really effective and it comes all the way down to the end where it's it's Roy McElroy and Cam Smith who choose two very different paths of what they care about mm -hmm. in, in the sport of golf. One chooses the history and legacy of the PGA Tour and the other chooses live. And mm -hmm. it's it's such a show about choices. And I think it's really effective in that way. Mm-hmm. And in the end, the good guys win. That's right. Because Rory's a That goat. is right. Yep. Yes, he is. <laughs> um, I yeah, hope I'm that we can talk about it, it again. Yeah, when you finish it. There's there's a really, really funny moment at the end that that I really like that I can't wait to, for you to get to so we can mm -hmm. talk about. So um, I'm, I'm, sure I'm really liking the show. Back. Yeah, I think so. Um that's a good that's a good thing to bring up because I don't think that we'll be podcasting again for quite a while at this point. Correct. Um, mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and say that I will probably not be podcasting until April because of mm -hmm. travel. It, it might be late, late March, like March 28th, 29th. Um, if anything, 
really important happens, John can solo pod it and and just let out his thoughts as a voice memo, (laughs) kind of oral history journal kind of entry kind of thing. Um, And that'd be really, really good. Um, So just know that in the meantime, I, you can, you can imagine me, you know, in, in a coffee shop in Paris, violently refreshing my phone to see if UNC has made the NCAA tournament. That's how you can. That's how you can imagine my state of existence. I'm I'm very excited for this time. Even though you will know by the time you go, I'm pretty sure, right? That's true. Yeah, uh, yeah. That that is true. I'll yeah. know if they made it, but I, I will be, okay. I'll be checking my bracket to see how my bracket's doing <laughs> yeah. from 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 various <laughs> historical monuments across the the western part of Europe. It'll be a good time. Have a wonderful time in Europe. And uh, thank you. If you see any soccer stars, make sure to get pictures with them. I will. And put them on I will. Instagram. If I see Bakaya Saka, I will let you know. Please give him a hug for me and tell him he's beautiful. I will. I will do both those things. Um, <laughs> I will. Uh, England is playing Ukraine while we're there at Wembley. So at least there'll be, there'll be some go? sort of soccer. No, probably not. But oh, man. there'll be some sort of <laughs> soccer festivities going on, so it'll be it'll be fun. I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It'll be a good time. Have a lovely time. Thank you. Anything else on the pod this week, John? Anything else you wanna you wanna so. mention? I think we've I think we've kept the folks long enough. Yeah, I think we've we've gone too long to get into Mando, so that we'll just have to wait for another <laughs> yeah. for another time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do think that is that is it for the pod. So until next time, we hope that you all continue to be well and be safe, and we'll talk to you later. All right. Cheers, guys.